your moves. Stop the car right here. There they go. All right, give it here, give it here. Oh, man, you need to do it. Cool, guys. Stay in the car, man. Stay in the car. Stay in the car. Uh, hi, officers. Um, We had a flat tire back there. Do you think you guys could help us out? Nah, that's not my job. My job's not to help your fucking ass out. I mean, um, you know, I don't have any other way to get home. That's not my job, asshole. Well, uh, could you tell me what your job is? Right now, my job is eating these donuts. Or maybe... Hey, wait a minute. Aren't you... Yeah. Body count. Body count. Body count. Yeah, motherfucker! Body count. 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 Checking out the very first Body Count album by OG, Mr. Ice Motherfucking T, And I am, of course, your host for the evening, Mr. Mark Rattledge. And frankly, I'm not even mortified tonight. I'm ready to get down. Yeah, Body Count, motherfucker. Can you, I, this is the most excited I've been for a podcast. I, I don't know how long. This right here. This is what's got me all excited. And I know some people, oh, you're a little too much rattled, a little over the top. I don't care. <laughs> I love it. Love it. Ugh, can't wait. Now, here's a man who's going to keep things under control for tonight. <laughs> here's a guy who's not going to let me get too out of hand. Mr. Robert Cooper, how do you do, sir? 
I almost considered totally dropping gangster rap right here from the top of my head, and then I realized two things. One, I'm white, and two, I'm not Jeremy Lambert, so I can't do it. <laughs> no, neither one of us should attempt to rap tonight at all, ever. Never under under any circumstances. Um, no, actually, I, I could I could do it. I'm I'm a good wordsmith, but yeah, like I'm psyched for this album too because as we talked during the pre-show, there's a lot of things we can actually talk about. This isn't just like you know old man Radlich's vanity album that he wanted to talk about because he loves this album. Oh no, we could, we're gonna get into some musical themes and lyrical themes and a lot of interesting discussion. Hi, Jesse. <laughs> yeah, so I'm sure we'll be playing the home game tonight as he Facebook bombs me. Um, we love you, Jesse. We do. That, that, that's truth right there, motherfucker. Um, all right. A couple of things right off the bat. Um, I generally don't curse a tremendous amount on, on these podcasts. Uh, I will, you know, I will curse when the muse hits me, but um, if you're, that's not your thing, this may not be your podcast because I'm probably going to do that a lot tonight. The other thing is we are going to talk about Cop Killer. We are going to talk about Cop Killer fairly extensively. Let me state right off the bat, the Radiligion Broadcasting Network does not condone the actual killing of police. Okay? People might be listening to this going, oh, why would you play that song? It's so horrible. There's a whole discussion to be had about it, and we will have it. But I don't want people going into this thinking the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network hates the cops. Ice-T doesn't hate the cops, and we're going to talk about that when we get to He plays a cop. How ironic. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, he plays one at least on TV. All right, so let's get into this. Uh, First of all, how many metal albums are out there where they actually introduce the band in the middle of the song? You know what I mean? Like, you don't have, like, Dave Mustaine, you know, singing... (laughs) <laughs> He's just dan, 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 I'm Dave Mustaine, dan, 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 on the bass guitar, dan, you know. Like maybe you get that a little bit like in some country songs, but for the most part, people aren't out there introducing their fucking band in the middle of the song. You know what I mean? So right off the bat, they do the skit with the the fantasy skit. I'm going to talk about that in just a second, but right off the bat, you get this fantasy of Ice T shooting a jerk cop. And they go right into body counts in the house, which I've been playing a lot of because <laughs> I love it. And I'll talk about why in just a second. But, you know, it's just re- re- repetition, repetition, repetition. And then, boom, they introduce the band. And Robert and I were actually talking before the show. Body count is truly one of the most unique bands in the history of music. It, 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 it's hard to categorize, oddly enough, because it, so, it draws so heavily, obviously, from uh, rap music, traditional gangster rap music, as it's called, uh, but also from thrash metal. Yet it's very hard to sort of pin it down and say, well, what is it really? Because of the way that it was handled. But the other thing about it is, if you listen to rap music pre the chronic so if you listen to 80s like mid mid to late 80s quote-unquote gangster rap you know nwa ice t's original rap albums um east coast you got public enemy there's a lot of that going on in this album there's a there definitely drew from those elements um 
but it's but if you look at the history of Body Count, these guys were all actual rock musicians that put this band together. So it, it's a funny thing. The other thing that we're going to be talking about tonight is, again, the elements of fantasy in this album. This is very much revenge-oriented. And to truly understand it, you have to think about the African-American perspective. Um, people who, right or wrong, and I'm not necessarily defending in any way, shape, or form. I'm throwing elements out there so people kind of can follow the discussion. But if you think about elements that tend to uh, follow in certain uh, genres that are populated by African-Americans, there's distrust of the police, right? They, you know, this album, <laughs> this album deals with voodoo, which is if you've ever talked to anyone from the islands, that's a big part of the culture, um, either stated or participated in. Um, you've got the, you know, the, the fantasy, the, the sort of <laughs> the treasuring of white women, you know, that sort of thing. There's, there's so much of that going on. So, you know, so much like hatred towards uh, the traditionally white male power structure, all of that's in there. And you don't really find that in thrash metal. Why? Because thrash metal is mostly populated by white people who are not going to be singing about, you know, damn, I wish I had a white woman and goddamn the voodoo and let's kill cops. I mean, it's just not there. So um, I'm going to hang on. I want to throw it to you, Robert. I just. You just started listening to this. I mean, I, I listened to it back in 1992 when it came out, and I'll talk about that once I uh, once I hear from you about my first experience with this. But um, take it easy, there, Wheezy. <laughs> you all right? Yeah, I got some. I had some shit in my chest and my throat this week. It's great, but it's spring break, so at least I don't have to go to school with it. Well, there you go. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. This is your first sort of experience with body count. So just kind of give me your, you've heard the album, give me your overall impressions and, you know, react to, if you want to anything I've brought up so far. Oh, well, I was just going to comment on the whole uh, metal, thrash metal. Metal in general was very white dominated genre, which is very funny because I, uh, the college I go to is an HPCU and uh, I have a social justice class, which is taught by an amazing woman, Ms. Oates, and she's, I actually blew her away when I sent her some uh, African-American-centered uh, metal articles from my research, you know, during during the week when I'm doing stuff for my column. And I was like, yeah, you know, I love metal, but it really is just a bunch of angry white boys just yelling about things they hate. At, at, at the core, that's what it is, especially when you get to, like, the Norwegian shit because everybody's white there. <laughs> but, <laughs> sorry. Damn it, yeah. translucent. <laughs> Pretty much, but, uh, my experience of body count. The only the reason I knew they existed was when I first started getting into metal. I started looking into you know your bigger bands like your Metallica's and uh, eventually got into Megadeth. But I was looking into Black Sabbath, and their last album, Forbidden, actually has a song uh, I think that features Body Count or is like a collaboration with them. If I'm not mistaken. So, you know, I knew they were around, like, really early on in my metal listening career, quote-unquote. But I never listened to them because as soon as I looked at what they were, I'm like, oh, this is going to be like Limp Bizkit. <laughs> so I never never gave them a listen. I actually didn't give them a listen at all, like, in full until today when I was like, oh, yeah, me and, me and old man Rattler just have to do an album. But what really got me excited for this is I was listening to the Ground and Pound show from the week before last. Where you're like, we're playing body count, motherfuckers, and you play the play the song as the outro. And I'm like, dude, this is actually pretty fucking heavy. So that got me really stoked. 
And as for, like, I guess my listening experience, I kind of knew what I was getting into just because who was involved. Like, I'm not a big rap guy, probably not a surprise. But I kind of knew, like, Ice-T's reputation, and I knew the infamy of Cop Killer and stuff like that. So, you know, I kind of know, okay, I don't know the social situations at the time, but I have an idea of the social situations at the time. So I kind of knew what I was getting into, and after listening to this album, it did reaffirm a lot of it. But at the same time, as we uh, discussed in pre-show, like these, these themes, there's a lot of themes here that you're not going to get in metal. Like, not even, like, gang shit or cop shit. There's stuff talking about, yeah, you know, I watch my, uh, you know, I wish I wish there was a time when all my friends get to uh, live old and live to be old and the cops come and get the cats from the tree and stuff. I'm like, you don't get that in metal very often because that's just not really the social, uh, socioeconomic standing for a lot of the metal musicians. Sure, a lot of them lived in poverty, but I don't think they quite lived where, you know, where guys like Ice-T were from, like, was he from Compton? I don't know where he was from. <laughs> trying to remember. He grew up in like, uh, Crenshaw, know. which is, like, part of South Central Los Angeles. Um, yeah, if you think about bands like Poison, right, po- there were a couple of guys in Poison who I think grew up poor. Um, a couple of guys in Guns N' Roses who I think grew up poor as well. And certainly before the bands made it big, uh, Poison, you know, they, they were living like bums. I know the guys in Guns N' Roses were practically yeah, homeless. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the guys in the and, Rat were pretty yeah, much uh, eating crackers and uh, ketchup. But that doesn't. But you don't hear that in the music. You know, what you get in, like, early Motley Crue, early Poison, early Guns N' Roses, there's a lot of stuff about drugs um, and drinking, but you don't necessarily get, like, you know, we, <laughs> we, uh, we had to turn on the oven for warmth and the house smelled like, you know, like rat piss. You know, you don't get that sort of thing. You don't, you don't get the, I wish, you know, I, you sometimes get a little angst with the cops, but nothing like you hear on this album. Um, I'll tell you, this album is a, is a huge mix for me. It's, for me, it's very kitschy. Um, as I said to Robert, I said, this almost sounds like what would happen if, you know, an, an autistic kid tried to produce a thrash metal album <laughs> who's also a rapper. Like, an, you know, an autistic rapper trying to put what he thinks a, rap, a metal album should sound like. That's how Body Count comes across to me. It's like Ice-T tried really hard, <laughs> you know, and he definitely put his stink on it. But I think he was trying to create a product that was going to be universal, that would be accepted by both black and white people. And it, and it comes across as extraordinarily unique but also kitschy and in a lot of ways, terrible. <laughs> so well, we're going to explore kinda, all kinda of that. Sorta. It's a really weird mesh between two genres of music that hadn't really had much time to develop as a whole. Like, you know, metal... Well, let me yeah, stop you right there. The se- let me stop you right, let me, okay. let me stop you right there. The, progr- the progression goes like this. You had... Obviously, rock music steals from the blues, right? So, you know, thank your, thank your local black person, kids, because without them, we have no rock and roll. Um, you know, black people, pretty much, black people pretty much gave us modern music. Uh, so we, we pretty much stole that. that. When school starts on Monday, I'll just walk up and be like, thank you for heavy metal, ma'am. And she be like, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just walk around your campus thanking random black people for metal. 
Um, <laughs> make sure your face is make, make sure you have corpse paint on when you do it, and you and you give them the you know the uh, the horns. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Barretto. <laughs> um, so yeah, so white people st- totally stole the blues from black people, and you know, and <laughs> eventually created rock and roll out of it. Um, and you know, skipping ahead, you had elements of, you know, you, you sort of had de- demarcations of what was white music and what was black music, and then you had instances where white music incorporated black music into what they were doing, and, the, you know, and those were usually of high praise. Uh, where you have rock and rap coming together, I think one of the first, and certainly one of the most famous ones, um, was Run DMC and Aerosmith. Walk This yeah. Way Walk this way is an Aerosmith song, and then, you have, uh, and then they redid it again with, uh, with Run DMC at the behest of their producer. Um, and there's even like a video where, you know, there's, <laughs> Aerosmith is playing on one side of the wall and Run DMC is playing on the other side of the wall and Run DMC knocks the wall down and they play together and it's musical harmony. Um, a couple of years later, you have, uh, I believe on the album, Fear of a Black, uh, Fear of a Black Planet, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back by public enemy. One of my favorites, by the way, is uh, in elementary school. Um, there was an album, there was a song called... Uh, <laughs> Bring the Noise, uh, which they redid with Anthrax years later, and that was a huge, um, you know, and that was a huge sort of step forward in the mixing of rock and metal. Uh, so those are your building blocks right there. You had other instances. Like I think the Public Enemy toured with U2 at one point, um, and I think the Sisters of Mercy, which is one of the oddest tours I've ever heard of. But there were there was a lot of you know in the eighties and early in the eighties rather there was a lot of trying to bring up um, rap music into the world of rock and then you have this thing which <laughs> which then gives us later on your whole rap core rap metal scene which for better or for worse um, <laughs> and that's a whole other discussion. But it does take the world of music in a completely new direction, and a lot of that rests on the shoulders of Body Count, though they don't necessarily get a lot of credit for that. Um, last thing before we go ahead and play the next track, uh, what you're going to hear, like I said, over and over again, is a lot of traditional African-American tropes, um, especially with the next, the next skit that leads into the next song. But as you listen to it, like I said, just you know, keep thinking to yourself, at least in my opinion, this is a rap album. This is a early 90s gangster rap album set to metal tones. So here we go with um, a skit and then the next song, which is now sports and then body count. This weekend, 17 youths killed in gang homicides. Now sports. You know, sometimes I sit at home, you know, and I watch TV, and I wonder what it would be like to live someplace like, you know, the Cosby Show, Ozzy and Harriet. You know where cops come and got your cat out of the tree, all your friends died of old age. But you see, I live in South Central Los Angeles, and unfortunately, Shit ain't like that! 
head of him stashed with a case of hand grenade. Tell us what to do. Fuck you. See, body count did it before Rage Against the Machine. I just want to go on record as saying that. Um, <laughs> love this album. So, uh, like I said, the first time I heard body count, I think I told the story before. Uh, my cousin took me to a quote-unquote industrial music club, and they were not just playing industrial music, as I would come to find out. Uh, but I didn't know what the hell industrial was, so I thought it was all industrial. But just to kind of give you a, a, an idea, they played – that was the first time I'd ever heard Pants. This is the Hotel Leningrad, for those of you playing the home game on Long Island. Um, so this is 92-ish, uh, 92, 93, somewhere in there. Uh, this is in Mineola, Long Island, and – the club is the Hotel Leningrad, and they're playing this. They're playing Pantera. They're playing uh, Sepultura. They were playing. Um, they actually played the Shamrocks and Shenanigans Butch Vig mix, which, if you've ever heard it, that's like the metal version of that song. Um, you know, boom, shalak, lock, boom. All right, now and people punch each other in the face. Um, and they would mix it up with Ministry and KMFDM, Skinny Puppy, My Life with a Thrill Kill Cult, you know, all that stuff. And I remember um, being one of the few people in the club who the very first time they played Body Counts in the house, I was the only one who knew who it was. Like, I, I didn't know what was Body Count, I, but I knew I, I had been listening to Ice-T since I was in elementary school. Yeah, funny thing about me. I have been listening to, like, really brutal gangster rap, I guess you, you could call it, since my earliest days of elementary school, because I grew up in an all-black town. Um, so, I mean, I listened to Run DMC, LL Cool J, and then as rap got more aggressive and raunchier, so did my taste in rap. So now we're talking third, fourth, and fifth grade, just to kind of give you a timeline. And, my, and, a, and a father who basically said, as long as I don't have to hear it, I don't give a crap what you listen to, which I started listening to then Too Short, Ice-T, NWA. I had already been listening to Public Enemy, um, Two Live Crew, all, you know, all of that. So I was very familiar with a lot of rap music by the time I got to high school, before it was ever popular. As I used to, they used to say, I, I was always ahead of the curve. Before white people decided, you know, before white people bought the chronic and decided that rap music was a good thing, I was already there and had given up on it. So that's a whole other story. So I knew, I was very familiar with Ice-T, and I was just absolutely floored when I heard this, that, you know, like, oh, Ice-T was sort of stepping out of his... Uh, comfort zone in rap music and producing a metal album. And I think one of the thing, first things that really attracted me to it, besides the, the familiarity and the fact that, like, of all the people in this club, I knew who it was. I felt special at the time. Was how aggressive it was. You know, before you get Raised Against the Machine and Limp Bizkit and all this, you know, as we like to call it, the bro metal, there was this. Because if you think about a lot of the heavy metal that we've talked about, especially of the time period, you know, your Ozzy Osbourne, your Megadeth, your Metallica. Was it heavy? Obviously. Was it angry? Sure. Was it this kind of directly aggressive? I don't know about that. I don't know if you can necessarily say that the heavy metal of the time, though it was just starting to go that way, was so plainly and directly in your face. And this was, what do you think about that, Robert? 
uh, early thrash was like, Earth, hell, kill you in my business, and business is good, kill them all. Uh, some of Fistful of Metal, well, of course, Slayer, but Slayer was just more, not not quite like aggressive in terms of like. Um, there was almost added, subtlety to it, though. The, the, some of the stuff that you're naming, there was a subtlety to it. You, you, there, was, there was a subtlety to it, oddly enough. You know, maybe the song titles were very aggressive and obvious, but, I mean, the actual music itself, you know, sometimes you couldn't even make out the lyrics. You can distinctly hear what he's saying. Yeah, well, I think it's just a different medium. But I wouldn't, I'd say some of them, like, as a whole, like, when you compare it to some, a lot of the metal we have now, that is kind of sort of tailored to be that way by Toxic Holocaust. You know, some of the bands that are more crossover that move the punk genre into it. Yeah, those are a lot. Those are definitely as aggressive as like the older rap stuff. But, uh, oh, where was I going? I had something good. <laughs> <laughs> you, you went on a really good diet drive and I kind of wandered. I heard everything you said, but I forgot what I was going to say. But, uh, yeah, actually, well, you know how you feel about being the only person knowing what's going on with the music. Uh, it's such a good feeling, isn't it? <laughs> well, you had talked about, um, you know, your social justice class and, and the college that you go to. And you hear him say in the song, you know, we talked about it before we even played the song, you know, the idea of he's just the first part of that song. He's just describing, um, you know, how would you feel if a cop shot your kid on the way to school? And there's there's. Yeah. What you get a lot of in this album is, is like, as I talked about at the top of the show, this feeling of disgust with the social inequities of, of society. And again, this is the early 90s we're talking about. So if some of this stuff maybe doesn't apply today, you have to kind of think about what it was 20-some-odd years ago. <laughs> I can't believe it's that long. Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah, I'm 22. Really it's 22. <laughs> what, what year were you born? 91. <laughs> <laughs> you were born one year before this fucking album even comes out. Oh, Damn. Jesus Christ. I am almost 40. Talk, talk about Bandier, talking about Bandier Care. I got 10 of them stashed with a case of hand grenades, but I better keep it down because my kid's sleeping in the next room. Tell us what to do. <laughs> Shut up. Tell us what to do. Keep it down. Get off Tell my us lawn. what to do. Get off my lawn, Dan, Dan. On with the body count. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, right. like the themes, I, I feel like themes like that really do is, are what set this album apart. Because that even now, like, you know, you do have artists that, de- that delve into more deep topics and metal. Like, fans I've been obsessed with, Woods of Upree, they talk a lot about losing people and, you know, depression, but it's nothing... It's not as, I guess, brutal and true to life as something like this is, which is, which is why I really don't see it as a rap album on top of metal. Because when I think of that, I think Limp Biscuit, where they're using the metal instruments to make rap beats. Like, this feels like they took, like, hell, that last song, I was like, hey, I hear a little Iron Maiden in that. Again, this is them taking, like, what they would have used, like, the lyrics and themes they would have used for the rap album and just making rock. That's how I kind of see it. I see it as a rock album with, I guess, you know, what you would find with, with uh, rap elements in terms of, uh, you know, style and substance, really. But it's it, it does make it really unique, and especially when you compare it to some of their compatriots, 
and rap metal sounds a fucking masterpiece. So I still don't know if it's as good as I'm the man from Anthrax. I'm yeah. so bad I should be detention. I'm the man. <laughs> so uh, the skits on this album, and there are lots of them, um, set up the next song. So, like, uh, the first skit set up body counts in the house, kind of setting the tone for what this album was going to be. Uh, the second one set up the, the next song. And the third one specifically speaks to the idea of another trope in African-American society, uh, and that is... Um, Where do white women correctional at? Facility. We're going to get there. <laughs> we're, not, we're not there yet. The white women, the white women be next. <laughs> the, this one deals with a more serious subject, but one that is close to my professional heart, and that is, incar- is, that, is incarceration facilities. So this is um, a statistic and then bowels of the devil. A statistic. At this moment, there are more black males in prison than in college. Constantly, um, as a very small tangent and aside, uh, as I've been dealing with um, impoverished groups, social uh, groups that have suffered from social inequities. Let's just get right to the heart of it. Uh, 
poor black guys, drug dealers, that sort of thing um, in my professional career, one of the things that comes out when doing therapy with these folks, the tendency to put the blame on everything else in society. You know, I'm this way because I was poor. I'm this way because of the cops. I'm this way because of George Bush. You know, there's always some they, – they couldn't internalize their own, their own mistakes. There was always some other thing that was keeping them down. Um, and one of the things that they would always just throw out there is, you know, just to sort of pepper their argument with, you know, <laughs> fancy anecdotes and such, was, wow, see, there were always more black males in prison than in college. And uh, I want to read an article real quick, um, part of an article. This is written March 16, 2013 from the BBC News magazine. And um, a close look at the figures for 2009 showed that there were 600,000 more black male college and university students than black male prisoners. The story so often repeated was not true. Uh, but had it had been true before, the statistic was first published by the campaign group, the Justice Policy Institute, in 2002, using figures from 2000. Um, some, uh, someone named in the article, Tolson, compared those figures with the latest data and noticed a suspicious jump in the number of black students attending college and universities. How did we get a 108% jump in the black male college population, he said. It didn't seem feasible for us to achieve that in only 10 years, he said. He found that a number of colleges reporting a lot of black students they had reported none or very few back in 2000. Results he wrote up in an article for The Root. The first thing that jumped out at me was that right now there are 4,700 colleges that report black students. Ten years ago, there were about 3,000. And this goes on. Um, you know, I could have given you more extensive research here, but the point of it is, is that it is a lot easier for people to sort of shift blame for their own uh, mistakes to others, to outside entities, as it's easier than to not accept responsibility for anything you've done. But that shouldn't necessarily upend or discredit Ice-T's uh, assertion here. While it's wrong, there are not more black males in prison than in college, you, there are certainly a lot of them, you know, and there, the the barriers to succeed in this country can certainly be harder for impoverished groups of people, uh, more so than others. And certainly, there you know, impoverished black people have a have a steep hill to climb. Um, and when you consider the drug war, which is usually targeted at minorities, you know, black people especially, uh, it's no wonder that you get a song like this. You know, it's no wonder you get a song like, you know, about you know black people in prison. Because that's the perception is that, well, they go hand in hand. Uh, this is a society that makes a point to, you know, throw as many black people into prison as possible. Um, and, I, and again, I don't want to say too much more about that. This isn't the right hook or the Whiskey Rebellion. But, I, you know, it's, if you're going to deal with a song that talks about prison, it's important to actually talk about, well, prison. Robert? Yeah, uh, well, I'm not sure. if it Was this statistic true in, in 1992, though? That's what I'm wondering. Because I could see it being true. Yeah, it may have. I mean, hell, I could. It may have. It may have been. It may have been. Yeah. I, like I said, I don't think yeah. Ice T was completely off, but it, the thing of it is, it had been. He, it had been said. That had been said for years before that. But in other words, when I say it's a popular trope, I'm talking about like without having looked up anything, people would say this. It had become legend. 
You know, it had become, uh, you know, they say when the, when the myth is more alluring than the reality, repeat the myth. So who knows? When, who knows when there were more black males in college than in prison, but it didn't matter because the point that he was trying to drive home is, oh, look, the United States is, it can be a terrible place for black guys because we'll start shoving them into prisons by the dozens. Well, I'm not going to argue. I can't argue too much about that. That's not a subject I really know too much on. And seeing as when I try to make inferences and guesses on things I don't know on, we end up with Clamato. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you tell me what you think of probably the most thrashiest song on here that doesn't repeat the same phrase over and over and over again? Yeah, that is a problem with this album. I, I'm in, actually kind of, in, kind of did enjoy this song. It was the, the lyrical themes were, again, it's something you're not going to find on any thread. I don't even think any rap metal album does anything like this. I'm pretty sure this is the only metal album that does, like, the only metal band that covers these topics because it really is a rapper. <laughs> like, and a, and a gangster rapper at that. Well, well, yeah, he's still a gangster rapper. I don't know if, I wasn't sure if he counted because he plays a cop on TV. But, yeah. Uh, well, one thing I did notice when we talked about skits, was that, I know that's something that was brought over from the hip-hop uh, and the rap and stuff like that. There, I know there were a lot of skits on early hip-hop albums. And that's not exactly something, I mean, it is somewhat prevalent in metal, but that's, those skits are usually included in the song. Like, you know, the skit that sets up the song, that's just, it's just not going to put it in the song. <laughs> Sorry. But I know in hip-hop, especially early hip-hop, this was a thing that people like to do, kind of break up the album, make it a little more, uh, bring a little preface to the topics that they're going to be talking about. De La yeah, Soul's cool. Three Feet High and Rise. De La Soul's Three Feet High and Rising would break up their album. Like they, they established at the beginning that Three Feet High and Rising was the name of a game show, and they would break up the different songs with like bits and pieces of a um, fictional game show which had the most awesome questions ever. One question was, how many times did the Batmobile catch a flat? How many fibers are intertwined in a shredded wheat biscuit? <laughs> Which occasionally I'll ask somebody. I, I, I don't remember a whole lot of De La Soul, so three feet high and rising. I mean, I remember three is the magic number. Um, I remember everyone fucking knows potholes in my lawn. Nope. Now I'm blinking because I'm wondering if anyone knows what the fuck I'm talking about. Oh God, I'm so old. Um, yeah, you know, that's like old number. man Rattledge. I am old man Rattledge, and boy, am I showing my age tonight. Uh, Potholes in my lawn. That was the big single from Three Feet High and Rising. The actual title track, Three Feet High and Rising, was a good song. Um, yeah, De La Soul. Uh, like they, they spiked, and then they went into obscurity, and then like they, there was like a small resurgence years later, the more modernized sound. But to go back to the whole skits thing. Um, yeah, they set it up at the beginning of like it's a game show, and they would throughout the album they would kind of go back to it and like there were different contestants who didn't know any of the answers to any questions. <laughs> Pretty amusing. Um, speaking of amusing, we now but Robert's favorite part of the album apparently. <laughs> Where do white women at? Where do white women at? Yeah, I mean, pretty, no, I I found this song to be pretty fucking hilarious. <laughs> yeah, this is where we really start delving into the uh, black animosity fantasy rap. 
of fantasy metal. This is where, where Ice-T sort of takes us down into the real pathos of African-American angst in America, and I love it. It's, it's so, like I said, it's so great and terrible at the same time because it's just, here, give it a listen. Give it a listen, and then you'll understand what I'm trying to say. The problem is in the lyrics on the records. It's the fear of the white kids liking a black artist. But the real problem is the fear of the white girl falling in love with the black man. just changed witches um and so <laughs> isn't that the truth now you can just say arab yeah well yeah that's a whole <laughs> but um but so what you get is the turnaround now of you know of, of sort of black people you know sort of claiming <laughs> seriously braveheart where uh, i don't remember what it's called but like the king you know promotes his right of something or other where he has to sleep with the bride on her wedding day 
Oh, that, thing, along those lines. that was so that was so brilliant, isn't it? Like you know, <laughs> yeah. like oh yeah, I, I'm the king. You know, I get first dibs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so it's, it's kind of like that. You know, you translate it through through those eyes. Thinking of black people, like you know, you want to know a good way to stick it to the white man. Get a white chick to fall in love with you. Yeah, you know? <laughs> stick it to her. Exactly. Hmm. Stick, stick it to a, stick it to a white girl, and then and, and then what even makes it better is if you can find like the most racist white guy and get his daughter to fall in love with you. And it's so it's such fantasy crap. It's such you know sticking your thumb in the eyes of uh, of white you know, of white people in power, which is a hilarious thing because um, when when this album as we talked about uh, stirred up a lot of unnecessary controversy. And and because of the song Cop Killer. But that led to one of the most unintentionally hilarious things to ever happen in the history of music. And that was, uh, I got a file. Charlton Heston at a a Time Warner shareholders meeting after Charlton Heston stood and read the lyrics of the song KKK Bitch to an astonished audience and demanded to the company take action. Oh, I could just picture that. <laughs> she jammed it in my ass and said, oh, my God, what the hell am I reading here? <laughs> um, and the whole thing with, like, Tipper Gore and her two nieces, you have to understand, this is shortly after the Tipper sticker became a thing in music. Do, Robert, do you know what the Tipper sticker is? You guys don't know what the fucking tipper, tipper sticker is. Uh, For those of you playing for, the home game who don't know, there was an attempt to put a rating system on music so that they could keep uh, harmful music out of the hands of minors. So they wanted a system like you would have for movies. The problem is there's only a couple of, there's only like, you know, a hundred movies or so that maybe come out in a year and it was easy to get a rating on all of those as opposed to albums where it's hundreds of thousands of albums come out in a year. There's no way to like break them filthy, all. Like a filthy seven songs or something like that. I remember like Merciful Fate was on there, and I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This led well, to like Frank you know, Zappa, hearings. Yeah, yeah, Frank Zappa testified, Dee Snyder. Um, certain the dead Kennedys were brought, into, were, were brought into court for distributing harmful matter to minors, and, that's, and it was because of their music, but the thing they actually got busted for was the, um, we've talked about it before, was the H.R. Giger painting um, that, that was inserted in the album. But, uh, yeah, the whole tipper sticker thing was, that, that that's where the whole parental advisory explicit lyrics thing, because they couldn't do a rating system. It was pretty much impossible. They settled for a sticker that if it had dirty words on it, they got the sticker on it, and then, and then stores could opt not to carry albums with stickers. And in 2014, you can listen to a band called Fuck. I'm not even joking about that. There's a band called Fuck out there, okay? Uh, you can stop listening to this podcast right now and go find it. There's a band called Fuck, and you can listen to it. You can listen to a band called Anal Cunt, okay? <laughs> so I don't know what That's was accomplished here. <laughs> Yes, the favorite all-star band, uh, you know, Hall of Fame band here on the Metal Hammer of Doom, Anal Cunt. Uh, so my, my point here is there was all this effort and congressional time and energy wasted on trying to control the amount of music that was out there and the kind of music that was out there, and it resulted in absolutely nothing. <laughs> and, and thank the Internet kids for that. 
Um, in the meantime, at the time, there was a lot of anger and angst directed at the Gore family because of this, and therefore, what a fantasy thing it would be to have sex with Tipper Gore's daughters or nieces or whoever the fuck he says on this album. Um, ha, you want to try to censor me? I'll fuck your kids. Ha, ha. Uh, God, Tipper... Tipper Gore, I'd, I'd love to make her just eat my dirty gym socks because that that woman is a moron. Mm. <laughs> like, I can doing what she thought. But how, how, how is she any more of a moron than Michelle Obama, who thinks she can, you know, solve obesity? I mean, all of these women try to find a purpose in Washington and fail miserably. Nancy Reagan, you know, solution for you know drugs in America was just say no. Come on now. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. I guess I just take hers more personally because music. That and a lot of what they were like worried. About. You know, at least with obesity, that's actually a real problem. Yeah, well, the fact that I find Michelle Obama to be uh, offensive. So how do you like that? All right, we're gonna move on. Unless, unless you want to talk more about black guys fucking white chicks, we're gonna move on. How do you how do you feel about that? Well, I mean, that? I think I've seen a few films. <laughs> what I what I find really just my last point on this, what I find really hilarious. I guess in nineteen ninety two this was you know, again, Charlton Heston reading the lyrics and all that, this was like, Oh my god, how do you take something that's sort of you know, hinted at in in the culture but not really talked about and just sort of throw it out there in this most extreme fashion? <laughs> in two thousand fourteen you look back at a song like KKK bitch and it's more comical than anything else. It's ridiculous. I look at it. Like, like it's like there's no. I can't even call it social satire because it's like like okay, so black guys fuck white chicks, yeah, and <laughs> good for you. And the sun will rise again. <laughs> you know, and then she'll get up, she'll get up and fuck again. You know, whatever. I think the only people who have any kind of like legit commentary on that subject are black women comedians who are usually it's in the vein of where are all the good black men? Well, they're usually fucking white women. That's what happens. See, you know, it's like to get a little success. They go seek out the white women. Like, oh, <laughs> poor uh, they want to be loved by somebody who can keep a job. All right. Um, moving on. Okay. So, <laughs> The, this next one, uh, I was going to combine it with the track that comes after it, but uh, I actually want to get your opinion on this. This is just a, a solo called C-Note, and it's named after one of the guys in the band. For legal purposes, I really can't play more than that. But you've heard the whole thing. Do you have any thoughts on that uh, minute and 30 seconds of Solo uh, named after Ernie C? Well, two things. One, it was kind of a weird fit for this album. I was like, oh, okay, that's a thing. But this album does have really (laughs) 
Yeah, I was I was just kind of like, huh, okay. Because, you know, I was expecting some sort of skit or something. I wasn't expecting some sort of, like, you know, mellow guitar guitar solo. But there are some great fucking guitar solos on this album. Though. They're straight shredding. And then the drum fills are just pretty great. That's that's one thing I did take away from this album. Like, damn, these guys can play. I mean, not necessarily are they the best, like, you know, crafters of songs at times. And they do tend to repeat the same damn thing so half the time. But, you know, they can fucking shred when they need to. <laughs> and that, and I, okay. I salute that. So another... Um... This isn't necessarily a trope so much as it is just part of the culture, um, especially where I grew up in New York. You get a lot of Jamaicans, Haitians, uh, West Indian folks, and uh, whether whether it was acknowledged, practiced, seen, accounted for, whatever, um, it, voodoo got brought up. Um, and even to this day, I was just having a conversation with one of the inmates at the jail I work in, and I work in like the meth capital of fucking Florida. You know, I work in a in a very it's supposed to be a very white uh, county, but there are pockets of high populations of Heisenberg and <laughs> exactly, and um, you know we're not we're not exactly you know swarming with islanders here. But despite the fact that, you know, we've got your traditional African-American families here, you know, born here, grew up here, um, may, may have had roots going all the way, uh, you know, back for 100 years or so, they'll still talk about how, like, they have somewhere in their family someone practices voodoo or um, something along those lines. And like I said, an inmate actually blamed that on the reason why his mother was, was uh, crazy, he was like, oh, you know, the reason why my mother acts this way and the reason why I'm the way that I am is because of the roots. And I'm like, what's the roots? And he goes, the roots is voodoo. <laughs> okay. I'm like, no, the, it's because your mother's borderline person. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's because your mother's borderline personality is disordered, but that's a whole other story. Um, in any case, it's, uh, it's this next song. It's, you know, story time with Ice-T, but it's, again, it reflects a depending on who you ask, a small or a large part of the African-American experience. This is called, and, but it, this is highly satirical and silly at the same time. I don't want people to think like this is like the authentic island experience. This is the silliest, one of the silliest songs I've ever heard in my life. But it's very catchy at the same time. This is voodoo. She had a long, shiny needle. She 
held a doll in the air. It looked kind of like me. She took the needle, stuck it in his eye. Anyone else get like an image of um, I think it's Lenny from The Simpsons when uh, you know I'm not supposed to get pudding in that eye, bitch. Dun, 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 you know. Uh, that's a Simpsons reference I don't get, sadly. Oh, uh, you don't know that one? No, it's not ringing a bell. Like I, I used to watch The Simpsons a lot back in the day. I, I don't watch it anymore because well, the quality's gone into the shitter, but. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, a, it's an old reference. It's just, he has like a, he has yeah, well, he has a glass eye, and um, you know, and he like gets something jammed, and he's like, oh, I'm not supposed to get some blah blah like pudding or whatever. I'm not supposed to get pudding in that eye. It's, it's really <laughs> funny the way he says it, but that's sort of the delivery Ice T has here with this song. Ah, my fingers, bitch. <laughs> my hand. I want to know, dude. Ice T's a pimp and a gangster. How did he not shoot this motherfucker in the head? Like, like she should. Like, lady, I come to you seeking the knowledge of voodoo. Oh yeah, huzzah! Pin in your hand, huzzah! Bullet in your dome. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe he was feeling like uh, gracious. 
And maybe he was like, you know what, I'm going to try to turn in a new leaf. And instead of shooting him, like, you know. He's going to kill his later. mother later on in the album. No, 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 no. He's going to kill his mother later on in the album. Okay? Don't hand me he was feeling great he's going to turn over. I want to know why at the end of this one he doesn't buck the cap in our ass. Uh, I can't honestly tell you. Maybe if if we ever see Ice-T, we should try to ask him, like, hey, man, why didn't you bust the cap in that guy's ass? He goes, which guy? I'm like, you know, the guy from the first body count out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the voodoo lady. Well, you know, you can yeah. find Ice-T, as I found out. If it, um, Back when I lived in Los Angeles, I went into the strip club, and I look over, and uh, I see him chilling at a table, and he's only, he doesn't like, have a whole bunch of people around him. I was like one or two, and I, I was with a buddy of mine, and I was like, oh, my God, Ice-T. I really like Ice-T. I was a huge fan of his, especially back then. So I did, you know, I did what you do, and the whole reason why CM Punk quit the WWE, I walked up to him and, you know, while he's at the strip club, and I was like, hey, big fan. Been a big, been a big fan for years. Just wanted to shake your hand. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. Shook my hand. I left him alone. Didn't ask for anything. Didn't ask for an autograph. You know, I'm not into, like, harassing celebrities. I'm really not, like really not somebody who's, in, who's into like, bothering celebrities at all, and God knows I've seen a bunch in my life. Um, but, you know, I can't, know. Like, he was one of those where I was like, I just wanted to shake the guy's hand and be like, hey, and acknowledge that, hey, I'm a huge fan. So I did that, and uh, so Stripper comes over to the table, and she's like, did you just walk over and say hi to Ice-T? I'm like, yeah, I'm a huge fan of his. She's like, oh, he's such a loser. He's here all the time. <laughs> well, I guess it's one of those things, like, you know, like you're in a band, and everybody just won't shut up about the fucking lead singer, and you're the bassist. You're like, ah, he's a guy, whatever. <laughs> he's like, he's not that great. I see him every day. Right. Well, apparently, at least back then, Ice T was just simply mad about strip clubs, which is weird when you're supposed well, to be a pimp and an OG. But well, yeah. If you've, seen, if you've seen his wife's ass, I'd say he's he's moved on up. That was right. that was uh, a guy. Right. I, there was a guy I met at a. Uh, used bookstore and we talked metal for literally two hours and I'm like yeah I write for four and one he goes oh yeah man I go there all the time I love wrestling he goes you need to tell them to get more pictures of Coco's ass up sometime I'm like oh, I'll make sure to put that memo in <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think that's going to be a problem I'm pretty sure that's in our policies and procedures at 411 Coco's ass uh, must yeah. be a new picture posted every hour or Tim Kardashian which I'm like that's music Still, yeah, fuddles me. Her ass is musical. Um, all right, so <laughs> next is the most unintentional. <laughs> uh, this next song is the most unintentionally hilarious song on the entire album. This is called "The Winners Lose." My friend's addicted to cocaine. Cocaine. <laughs> My friend's addicted to cocaine. Smoke and I drive. Every dollar he gets goes into the fire. 
ballads go, Robert Cooper? How would you rate that one? Ooh, we see. We got to look at like the ballad scale. Are we looking at like overall ballads or shitty hair metal album ballads? Because I put this uh, one. Give me both. Okay, well, on an overall ballad score scale, I'd give it about a four because Ice T couldn't sing his way in and out or around the bag. <laughs> and in terms of shitty hair metal, I'd give it about a six because. While it is not the most well-performed, it is very catchy, which is what all those <laughs> shitty ballads tend to pride themselves on. So you can't tell me you don't listen to Every Rose Has a Thorn and then end up singing the song for the next 20 hours and wanting to hang yourself. Hear that? Or wear a hair a bandana that covers your bald spot like Brett Michaels. God, I hate poison. But, yeah, the, this is actually interesting enough. I was looking at the... Uh, the uh, writing credits. This is the only song not written by Ice T. Nope, it was written by Ernie C. True story. Yeah, it was, and maybe that's why it's a ballad. But it does cover an inter- interesting topic, like you know, drug abuse. That's not something we often get in metal. Like, yeah, we'll get sometimes we'll get like little smatterings of it, but it's not straight up like, you know, my friend's addicted to cocaine. It's really fucking sad. Now, most of the time, it's just like, girls, 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 coke, coke, coke. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, a a very serious topic and what could have been a very powerful song is ruined by the fact that Ice-T sounds like he raped a cat. (laughs) (laughs) What, he's trying to whisper over the phone, trying to explain what happened. He's like, I swear I just had my dick out. And then the cat showed up and things just went about, you know. And he's just really trying to be on the down low and make sure nothing, nobody knows and nothing happened. But instead it just kind of makes him sound like he's guilty about putting putting things where things shouldn't be. Going after the wrong pussy. Hi-yo. <laughs> Yeah, he. Um, they really should have brought somebody in on this one. <laughs> they, th- this would have worked out a lot better had they brought in, you know, like an actual singer to, to do this and have maybe Ice T do, you know, you, 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 you're losing your life, you know, some, something along those lines. Trying to get him to sing like a serious ballad. And like Ice T acknowledges he can't sing. I'm, not, I'm like, I can't sit there like, well, boy, he have delusions of grandeur on this one. Like he knows he can't sing, he's, he knows that like his strength is not singing, um, but that's what they call for. And this, 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 like I said, it's not a bad song. It's just ruined by by Ice T. You know, it's a really good idea and a really good concept. It. It, it's one right. of those things that would have been so much better done by somebody who was better fit for the job. <laughs> Well, like, think about, like, have you ever heard Chris Cornell's cover of Billie Jean? Because if you haven't, you will in two weeks. But oh, have you ever heard geez. it? Ah, uh, Chris Cornell. No, I've not. Chris Cornell does a haunting cover of, of Michael Jackson's Billie Jean, which in two weeks, when the Metal Hammer of Doom comes back and we do covers, I'll be playing that one for you. But imagine We're this going to have a very, Cornell. That's going to be a very interesting... Let's go to three hours. I have a feeling you're gonna. Is it really? <laughs> oh, that's gonna be so. Oh, I'm shit with the, with our musical variations and the, the fact that I have slowly and slowly adopted your slogan as there is no such thing as a bad cover. 
which is partially true. Well, actually, it came to be a problem because I uh, took upon reviewing a Melvin's cover album last year. And at the end of it, I was like, I mean, it was good. It's a covers album. What can I say? Oh, yeah, they did a good job of not fucking something up. <laughs> These songs aren't terrible. I, be, Next. I, was, I was like, yeah, I mean, it's pretty true to the original. Good good for them. It's Let's talk about some people who can actually sing for a moment. And, and and you can like agree or disagree, but these are some of my my, my favorite voices. You know, Chris Cornell on the male side, love his voice. Sure, I think he's an outstanding singer. I think he sings the winner lo- the winners lose. It sounds a hundred percent better. You know, like you don't change another lyric to it. Um, and you have Chris Cornell and Ice T sort of duetting on this, where they they sing their strengths. This is a much better album. Tori Amos on the women's side, love Tori Amos's voice. Very powerful right, I don't know singer, mousy woman. Okay, well, nobody said you had any taste. But um, <laughs> the the uh, the singer from oh god, what's her name from Concrete Blonde? Um, the chick from Concrete Ooh. Blonde. And the, oh, I've never heard of Concrete three Blonde. Non-blondes. No, Concrete Blonde. That's the cover band. Um, yeah, 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 no, no, no. Um, anyways, have you ever heard Concrete Blonde? No. That's why I was so confused. You should. And you're like, yeah, con- oh, I probably should. Concrete Blonde's awesome. I'm gonna make you listen to some of it. Jeanette Napolitano. Jeanette Napolitano has an amazing voice. You know, she sings the winners lose. It sounds awesome. You know, can you think of any any woman or male whose vo- whose voice in particular you think would handle the song well? Hmm. See, all the ones I'm thinking of, like, mm, wouldn't quite m- match the stylings. Hmm. Let's see. Who would do a good song about my friend being addicted to cocaine? Some well, Johnny Cash. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I like it. Yeah. I like I like where you're going with that. It just kind of popped into my head. I'm like, yeah, Johnny Cash is haunting really well. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's, that's why hmm. this song is unintentionally hilarious. Because instead, yeah. you have this guy's voice cracking in the middle of the song. Like, my friend's addicted. Yeah, it's addicted. Like, okay. It's okay. Oh, it's, it's oh, really, like, it almost feels like a joke ballad. Right, just it really does. He, he, he can't do it right. Yeah, it's iced tea in the tryhards. All right, uh, so after after this song sort of takes a weird turn there, we're back to uh, heavy and silly, not necessarily in that order. So here goes, there goes the neighborhood.
Oh, no, black people playing heavy metal. Like, we'd never heard that before in 1992. Like, you know, Living Color in 1983. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at this point... We're... Oh, go, ahead. go ahead. Oh, okay, I was, about to, I was about to make a joke about my favorite uh, all-black heavy metal band, Black Death. If, you, if you've ever seen... Like, have you ever heard them? They're pretty awesome, but if you look at them, they're just, like, just all, like, dressed in leather and stuff, and I'm like, you know, this is, like, a stereotype, isn't it? Because they look like, you know, like, this would be a black guy playing heavy metal. And you you just have to see them. It's actually pretty, they're awesome, but they look very stereotypical. Yeah, I, you know, it's, again, we're, we're, we're back to, you know, Ice-T sort of, um, you know, pointing at... You're getting in the face of uh, of society and mainstream culture, and like, oh no, is black people playing heavy metal? What are you going to do about that? And this sort of perceived uh, angst and anxiety over black people invading white people's space in music, and it's like, boy, twenty years later, that's not what happened at all. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I mean, shit, we still don't see black, black people in metal. Well, not only so that, but in cases where it, in cases where it occurred, I mean, how many, what, you know, was this, was there ever this huge, like, backlash against black people invading white people's space in music? No, it was like, fuck, whatever. You know, is the music good? Sure, who cares? Yeah, it never became, like, a race thing. I just think it's more of a cultural thing, is why you don't see as many black people in heavy metal. So, that does lead me into two, the two articles I mentioned I sent to my instructor. One of them was about a, a band of, uh, I think they're like 12 and 13 year olds from like Harlem playing fucking metal in the streets. It's like this kid's fucking rock. And then another one was about a, uh, was a story from Canada where they were talking to a, uh, black woman who was a heavy metal singer. And she's like, Oh yeah. You know, uh, she, she says she's been discriminated against and stuff like that. And I'm like, okay, okay. And then as I, you know, keep watching, she's like, yeah, the, all these big record companies would come up to me and be like, oh, yeah, we'll totally give you a big deal, but you've got to dress and look like Tina Turner the whole time and wear those heels and have the hair. And she's like, fuck no, that's not what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's not the kind of discrimination he's talking about here. <laughs> no. I had a bunch of friends well, who, who put together a band and they, you know, and like they were, they were the record company that they were going to sign with was willing to give them a deal as long as they looked like Slipknot or they had like a, like a Slipknot type gimmick, you know. Oh, um, that's just that's just the way it is. So, yeah, I just, there goes the neighborhood. Is is again? It's a kitschy song. It's but it's and in 2014, you go back and listen to it and go like, oh boy, were you worried about the wrong thing? Uh, so uh, I mean, there's a lot of some, a lot of the stuff. I felt like some of it was kind of like this song. I didn't think it was really that like dangerous. Maybe it's just because it's a retrospect sort of thing. Like you know, I'm like, oh, you know, black people in metal. I'm like, yeah, that's true. You don't really hear much of it, but I don't think it's really our, oh, they're afraid of us. Just like uh well, yeah, I, cool. I was gonna say that the, the black people don't play metal because most don't like heavy metal music. It has nothing to yeah, do with you know. Yeah, it's just, you know, like, I, I, a lot of white people don't necessarily like, you know, traditional rap music. Many a people lot of black do. people don't like country music. Yeah. Actually, I hate country uh, a music. A lot of white people don't like country music. You know? God, it's just, you know, what? not every, obviously not every musical genre is going to find a large audience, um, you know, here and there. It just, it, it, but again, 
he's he's speaking to sort of the anxiety of white people of you know of black people sort of sort of taking back the culture we stole from them in the first place, and it never it never that never went down like that. Uh, so the song ends up being ridiculous, especially in retrospect. I mean, back then it was you know there was there was something of. Uh, there was some angst to it. You know, it was like, ooh, black people, you know, like, ah, we're in your face now. We're playing your music. What are you going to do about that? And the collective reaction was, get up and dance? Uh What am I supposed to do? 1992. This is not 1952. Uh, all right, so this next one, is, so this next song makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm just going to play it. But this is not my thing right here. Oh, my God. This song is ridiculous. Uh, we have another skit here, uh, worst impression of Oprah ever. On Oprah Today, we discuss male promiscuity, why men are constantly in a search for sex and new sexual partners. Evil Dead! Evil Dick Cheney, right? 
I'm like, oh, okay, that's uh, <laughs> this is a thing. Okay, I can't say I've ever heard a song blaming, like, kind of like the devil made me do it. More like well, I was going to say, I would it. never, I would, I would never in a million years cheat on my wife. It's, it's not who I am. It's not what I will. It's not what I would do. But I think that if I ever did, I'm blaming it on Evil Dick. I'm totally saying that. Look, I stopped my fault. My evil dick made me do it. It said, don't sleep alone, and I couldn't take the voices in my dick. So I, I had to do what I had to do. It's a medical condition. Oh, yeah. Really. Yeah, it was just evil. Dick, you know, it's it's fault. <laughs> don't blame me. I mean, you can, but really, you're just doing a disservice to me, and you're ignoring the fact that evil dick does exist. <laughs> So this is this, this very much <laughs> this very much like incorporates a lot of elements from hip hop and, and rap music, you know. It's just it's it's the old joke that white people make about rap music, you know, it's like oh all these guys ever think about is bitches honey this bit you know bitches ho um hose money and drugs or whatever, hose money and cars. And and that's really all this song is. It's like, oh look Let's write a song that, com- that completely absolves me from any responsibility for cheating on my significant other. Um, it's my possessed penis. It's that. It's my possessed penis's fault. Yes. Don't you understand? I have a medical condition. <laughs> you know. I mean, is, is it catchy? Sure. I was singing it to my wife earlier. You know, like my kids like playing with her toys or whatever, and uh, you know, she knew I was doing the podcast tonight, and that I was excited for it. So I just kind of like got like nose to nose with her. I'm just like, evil, dick. And she's like, get away from me, creepy. Oh, God. This song should have been in, this should have been in the soundtrack of Boogie Nights. <laughs> what the fuck, Jesse? Yeah, I don't know. Why does Jerry Seinfeld look like a giant dick? I, I, uh, I, I guess I guess Jerry Seinfeld is the actual evil dick. That's who's singing. That's who's singing to Ice T. Jerry Seinfeld is telling Ice T not to sleep alone. Well, yeah, because Kramer's gonna come and scream like nasty things, and then everybody's gonna show up at Jerry's door because they thought that's where Kramer lives. Okay, I'm gonna move on here in the interest of time and play the body count out anthem.
this song suffers from a lack of production in the sense of like editing. <laughs> the purpose of you know, body counts in the house is body count in the house, uh, body counts in the house rather is awesome. And I'll tell you right now, any any professional wrestler in the indie scene, you know, in fact, casual heroes, Jesse Starcher, anyone out there who who interacts uh, on an ongoing basis with uh, indie wrestlers, tell them anyone that comes out to body counts in the house will have instant fans. That's the, that that's a hype song right there. It is perfect entrance music. Okay, then the you know the self-titled song Body Count that's good too. Really, did we need Body Count's anthem? This is where one of those things where it just becomes gratuitous. Like, all right, if we had two where you said your name repeatedly. Why do we need a third one that does absolutely nothing? It, when I when I was looking through the track listening to my Body Count anthem, fuck, we've already had Body Counts in the house and Body Count like. What are we gonna do? Is this like a mix mismatch of what we had? No, it's just yeah. Like, it, it's a okay, it's whatever. a little overindulgent. Um, I want to go ahead and, and just take a brief uh, station identification. The uh, Metal Hammer of Doom podcast retrospective look at the self-titled Body Count album will continue uh, for probably the next ten twenty minutes or so, where we will have a discussion about the song Top Killer. Uh, actually, the next one is Mama's Gotta Die Tonight, but we are va- uh, fast approaching the end of recorded to- of uh, rather live time. So we're going to move into the recorded part of our podcast momentarily where uh, we'll discuss the last two songs, give our summary thoughts, plugs, and then we're going to be done for the night. Uh, so if you want to come back and hear our thoughts on that, uh, give us about a half an hour, 45 minutes. It'll be up in the archive section. And uh, I'll be waiting for you there. So if you've listened to us live this long, we greatly appreciate your patronage. Uh, hope you've enjoyed the podcast so far and that you'll go ahead and download the whole thing and listen to the end a little bit later on. All righty. Uh, any last words there on the un- totally unnecessary body count anthem? That was totally unnecessary. <laughs> So I have to read this from Jesse. They say it over and over and over, and then they abbreviate to mix it up a little. Like, yeah, at that, that, at that point, they needed like a, a producer. To, this is what happens when you produce your own album: is you give in to self indulgence, and there's nobody there to go like, "This is unnecessary, you idiot." <laughs> Just start, take this off the album, okay? You don't need to be. You don't need three songs telling people who you are. But that's a. But that's an ongoing thing in rap music too. You know, how many times in rap in a rap song will someone talk about themselves in the third person? That's like, <laughs> they have to constantly adore, like remind people who they are. It's like putting your name on your underwear. It's like, all right, we get it. We know who the fuck people are in this song. Um, so, real quickly, this next one. Uh, there are two songs that totally remind me of my very, very angry uh, early, like, like late, early teens, late tweens, where um, I'm not going to go into a big long story here because I know people hate that. But uh, suffice it to say that my mom and I did not get along for a very, very long time. Um, And for reasons I'm not going to discuss now, uh, I really hated my mom for the longest time. I've, I've since forgiven her and I've gotten over a lot of this stuff. But Back then, back in you know, 13, 14, 15, 
Brown when I would have been listening to this album. This one and used to love her, which I realize is not about anyone's mother. It's about, you know, killing a girlfriend and burying her in the backyard. Um, but I used to listen to this song and used to love her and think about my mom because she would make me so angry. I was like, yeah, I fucking want to put you in the backyard. And I don't mind admitting it to this day. I was an angry teenager. There's a reason for I was an angry teenager, which I don't feel like talking about right now. But suffice it to say, I carried a lot of that with me, and it pushed me um, in some of the directions that I've already talked about on this and other podcasts. You know, why did I get into metal? Why was I angry? Well, I had a lot of problems at home. Um, you know, some more so than others. I'm not certainly going to compare my situation to those who suffered real poverty. Uh, and I was lucky enough to have two, two of my natural parents. So, you know, had it better than some, not as good as others. But uh, pain is pain and anger is anger. And I, you know, and I suffered from both to whatever extent you want to, you want to uh, measure it. So as much as my mother was not as bad as the portrayal of Ice-T's mother in this song, uh, I used to remember, I used to listen to it fondly and <laughs> think, you know what? This makes me feel a little bit better about my situation. So this is Mama's Gotta Die Tonight. What did I do wrong, you know? 
I found out my mother was an evil woman. She hated Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, Jamaicans, Indians, Orientals. Mama was no good. I learned to hate my mother, hate my mother. So I got some, uh, <laughs> some lighter fluid from the corner store. And I put it around her bed. And I set her on fire. <laughs> Burn, mama. What's sad is that this song will progressively get more and more absurd as this goes on. Like, he doesn't just set her on fire. He's going to chop her up into little pieces, and then he's going to get really silly and take her on tour for some odd reason. Hmm. Why, would, why wouldn't you chop her up and then burn her? No, he burned her first. Well, well yeah, but... but It'd be much easier to chop her up than burn her. Hmm. You think so? Well, I mean, I, mean, yeah, if I was I trying mean, to, kill, I was trying to kill somebody. I, I would think that you know, burning them alive would cause them. Especially if I, you know, I'm doing this out of anger, the way he is. I would assume you would want to burn them first, cause them a significant amount of pain, and then once the body is, you know, charred, then you chop it up because you got to dispose of it. Oh, that's true. See, I was thinking, like, burned to, like, a fucking crisp. Hmm. Yeah, because I was just thinking, though, like, wow, wouldn't it be easier to chop something that's a little meatier? Don't you love how that's what we're thinking about, like, rather than, like, anything else? I just go straight to, like, you know, why don't you chop her up first? <laughs> was this really the best way to commit this particular crime? Yeah, I mean, shouldn't you just chop her and then burn her? Well, I mean, at least you didn't take her on tour, burn her, take her on tour, and then chop her up. Christy got the last part right. <laughs> what is this, weekend at Bernie's? Why would he do that? <laughs> Bernie's? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good transition to talk about Top Killer now. Ugh. Um, all right. So, again, I do not advocate the shooting of police officers, even corrupt ones. But you have to sort of take Ice-T's perspective into this. Anybody in any kind of position of power, there's the chance they're going to abuse that power. Whether it's your supervisor at work, law enforcement official, teachers. I mean, the story, the, the story du jour in today's news world are teachers who sleep with their students. Well, that's an abuse of power right there. There's an example of it. Um, you know, politicians, parents. I mean, when you talk about child abuse, you have parents who uh, abuse their authority and their position of power with their children and kick the crap out of them or molest them or whatever. So it's not entirely unheard of or out of the ordinary for Ice-T to sort of draw in on a particular group of people who who abuse their power and take advantage of impoverished people, and that would be the police department. The LAPD, from what I understand, historically has had horrible race relations. Um, Now, some some, conservatives may come on and say, well, you know, White, no one, no one told black people to fucking riot, you know, every other decade and burn down their homes and, you know, or whatever. 
no one's telling them to commit all these crimes that you know that apparently uh, you know get get the LAPD all hot and bothered in the first place. Well, that's not the podcast to debate this sort of thing. But the perspective essentially is that in places like South Central Los Angeles, in very inner city communities, you have police that are trying to be vigilant, and some go over the line. And those are the stories you hear about. So does does every cop beat a guy in the street? No. Do some cops? Yes. It hap- it's still happening today. You go on Facebook, go out, look at Opposing Views or Reason Magazine or any one of these news. If you follow me on Facebook, you'll see it. Uh, every day there's a new story where a cop fucks up and, do, and goes over the line. We had a situation here in Hillsborough County, actually, where uh, a deputy threw somebody out of a wheelchair. And that deputy lost their job. So it's, it's not, you know, it's not like, um, you know, so it's not like this stuff doesn't get dealt with either, but in some cases it's covered up. In some cases it's not dealt with. There's insti- you know, there's a phrase, institutional racism, and it does exist to one degree or another. So what is cop killer supposed to be? Cop killer is a fantasy song. It's trying to reset the scales of justice. When you have people who are, are disadvantaged and are, you know, getting the ass end of the power structure, they fantasize about what it would be like to have the upper hand. In this case, violently killing uh, abusive police officers. And if you understand this sort of in the context of the Rodney King controversy, right, that's what really set this all off because no one gave a fuck about Cop Killer before this. It was just a stupid song on an album that, you know, was popular in some circles of music, but was not widely popular. And it only became so when it was used as a red herring to distract people from the Rodney King verdict. What was the Rodney King verdict? Basically, this fucking meth head gets pulled over, right? And he's, and he's just crying. Have you ever dealt with anyone on meth? You know, the cops were right for beating the shit out of him. Because people on meth, they get what's known as like meth strength. It's like they're like super <laughs> Superpowers, you know, they get they get so, so strong they can push over a drink machine on somebody, or a safe. So, so these guys, so this guy, you know, he's speeding, he's driving recklessly, he's fucked up beyond all belief. They pull this guy out of the car. They're trying to get him to calm down. He's whacked. Out. I've had to deal with this in the jail. We have brought people in, you know, into booking. They're they're fucked up on meth and God only knows what else, and they're like out of control. A lot of times we have to, like, put them on, quote-unquote, suicide watch, not because they're suicidal, but because they're literally, like, we don't take everything away from them and keep them in, a, in an isolated area. They're going to hurt somebody. So imagine you're the cops. It's late at night. You just pulled this guy out of the car. He won't stay down. No matter how many times I hit this guy, he won't stay down. And I'm telling you right now, law enforcement are trained to use as much force as required to subdue somebody which might sound excessive except for the fact that they're trying to protect themselves in, you know, in, in a dangerous situation. So they beat the fuck out of this guy, right, because he, he won't stay down no matter how many times they hit him. And, well, and this is why they got off. They were justified in their response to what he was doing, but it, in, the con- in the greater context of what was going on in, in South Central Los Angeles, it looked like another situation where white cops beat on black guys for no reason. This wasn't one of those times, but it looked like it to people who were looking for an excuse to explode. 
when the cops were, and rightly so, found uh, not guilty, it was, you know, there was the L.A. riots and you know, this whole question of what do you do with the, with the situation between the African-American community and law enforcement? How do, you, how do you mend these fences? And years later, Barack Obama will have a beer with like, like the Chicago PD or some bullshit. But um, you know, back then, it was, they were trying to deal with a, real, with a real subject. And instead of dealing with it, they picked a red herring, and they couldn't have found a better one in a stupid song called Cop Killer, which is, again, literally a fantasy about shooting abusive cops. So here it is. I mean, it sort of takes the oomph out of it when I put it that way, but this is the song that got America fucking all hot and bothered. This next record is dedicated to some personal friends of mine, the LAPD. For every cop that has ever taken advantage of somebody, beat them down or hurt them because they got long hair, listened to the wrong kind of music, wrong color, whatever they thought was the reason to do it. For every one of those fucking police, I'd like to take a pig out here in this parking lot and shoot them in their motherfucking face. or a protected class, like, oh my god, you wrote a song called Cop Killer, you can't talk about killing cops. Why? Why if you're, I mean, first of all, there's nothing subtle about this song. He specifically says to, you know, fuck police brutality. You know, he's talking about cops who are abusive, and he says, I'm going to kill them, tonight I'm going to get even. Okay, well, I'm not advocating killing cops, and two wrongs don't make a right, but, but why can't you write a – you know, if, if someone can write a book about killing George Bush, true fucking story, someone wrote a book that liberals jerked off to about killing the president. If you can do that, why can't you write a song about cop killer without, you know, without the country fucking having a stroke about it? 
This was the most juked up, retarded controversy I've ever seen. To the point where, and God bless Warner Brothers, because I have savaged them, you know, uh, for how they've treated their DC property, DC Comics. You know, they can't fucking make a decent movie. But um, in this particular instance, they, like, stood by Ice-T. They were like, nope, we're not pulling the song. Ice-T eventually pulled it off of there because he was like, yeah, instead of actually dealing with the problems with, with correctional officers and the communities that they police and trying to do something about uh, overzealous police who take advantage of their position of power, we're just going to focus on the fucking guy writing a stupid song. So you know what? I'll take the song off the record, and maybe then we can get back to solving problems. You know, like, I, I just it, – it makes me angry that, that – in, we're such infants in this country that we, you know, that, that instead of tackling problems, we look for the nearest red herring to distract ourselves from actually solving psychosocial issues in our in our culture. Rant over, Robert. Your thoughts on Cop Killer? Uh, well, I mean, you do bring up a good point. You know, who I get why why can't you talk about killing cops? Because you know that is, I guess it's just one of those sacred cows of the that a lot of people are like. Oh yeah. Well, a lot of modern society assumes that all oh, you know the cops are always the good guys, and I guess just assuming just singing songs about killing cops is like singing songs about wanting dead shelters. I don't know, but I mean it is a it is a good <laughs> point. It is kind of a what? Like wow, <laughs> that's your comparison, huh? Well, I was going with dead soldiers, but yeah. Well, that's not fucking dead shelters. Oh Jesus! Oh Lord, we're getting in some real like creepy shit on that one. But yeah, it is kind of a shame that <laughs> yeah, we're, we're getting in some uh, some stuff that's a little darker and even I like to delve in. And I make fucking Nazis and kill it. I make, I make next, an prank joke. Next on, the metal, next on the metal hammer of doom, necrophiliac child abuse. And you. So we're going through Cannibal Corpse's discography. <laughs> <laughs> da, 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 da. All right. Back, 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 yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So, It is kind of a shame that this song made everybody get so damn antsy in their pantsy about things. Like, yeah, I can see how this could be a problem and all, but I mean, if you look at where the guy's coming from, it's probably not all that wrong. I'm sure he had had he's had many a run-in with cops, and not most of them were probably not on the best terms. So you know fantasizing about killing a cop would, would be something that you know, you'd probably, you'd probably think about. And now, as we did say at the beginning, I do not condone killing of police. I tend to like the police, even though every time I'm driving near the police I get incredibly, incredibly nervous because I always feel like they're going to pull me. Which is kind of <laughs> what I assume Ice-T feels like every time he sees a cop on the road. He's like, ah, oh, shit, I'm black, they're going to pull me. Ah... <sighs> But yeah. you know, years so later, what's his face? Well, hang on. Years mm-hmm. later, uh, what's his face had ninety nine problems, but a bitch ain't one. And you know, and he talked about, uh, you know, being pulled over by the cops and harassed and everything else. And he was like, "Why are they pulling you over? Because I'm young and I'm black and this and that and the other thing." You know, it, that's one of the few tropes on this album that I think still remains relevant. You oh know, no, there's no, a feeling uh, black people having this feeling of being harassed. For no good reason. Um, what, what the, oh, yeah, racial uh, profiling is still a thing. 
I mean, a lot of people have said, you know, you know, if you're walking in the street and this big black guy walks by, and big, you know, big young black man walks by, do you get more nervous than if there was a white guy? And I'm like, well, I mean, yeah, I guess I would, and that's a bad thing about society, but honestly, yeah. I mean, shit, I get nervous when anybody big walks by. I'm like, shit, they're going to mug me, and then I'm going to be dying in the street. And it's going to be like that scene from Chappelle's show where they had the mad real world. You remember? And, like the one guy got, right. and the guy's dad got shanked. And he's like, well, stop He's like, what did I do? I'm like, see, that's going to be me one day. I'm going to get shanked because I looked at somebody and somebody said, stop looking at me like that. And I didn't know what they were talking about, so I kept looking at him like that. And then I got shanked. So there we go. <laughs> so the song itself, though, I mean, it's fairly simple. Like I said, it's if, if Rodney King doesn't happen, no one gives a shit about Cop Killer. It's not that good of a song. Oh, yeah. yeah it's okay. It's kind of simple. Kind of it does have a similar problem that some of the other songs here have, which is just repetition. I'm going to fucking kill this cat. Fucking cat. God. Are you gonna, can we can we conclude the podcast here? We, <laughs> you argue well, no, with your I, cat. I, well, no, my, if you can hear in the background, my doorknob is just jiggling to the cat. Like, let me in, bitch. So I got the squirt gun that's sitting here in my room, and I started trying to squirt him, but the things not squirting, so I just straight up fucking pistol whip him with it. I just bash him, and I ask him, <laughs> asshole. I mean, it's it's cat crazy. killer. Better you than me. Cat killer. Cat killer. Yeah. You know, that's I'm gonna I should rewrite that song called Cat Killer and play at a Chinese restaurant. Perfect. <laughs> All right. Anything else? Um I've talked a lot on this, you know, I was very I like you said, I was very excited to do this album. I had a lot to say about it. But I'm kind of I've kind of shot my load. Evil Dick is going to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Evil Dick has to work in the morning. Evil Dick would like to go to bed now, so I'm gonna throw it to you, Robert. You uh, you had an opportunity to listen to it, you know, hear me talk about it. Any final thoughts on Body Count's illustrious self-titled Body Count album? Uh, this is definitely it's very unique in the metal genre, as I said before, because it talks about a lot of topics and subjects that aren't or haven't really been covered before or, or since. It was taking a gangster ref's perspective and somebody who grew up in that era in that uh, socioeconomic place, you know, pretty much somebody who grew up where you would find gangster rap and brought it to metal. It's something very unique because when you look at, like, other rap metal bands, like, sure, like, you've got Stug Mojo is pretty awesome, but otherwise it's a bunch of angry white boys. That's really what they always boil down to. This album here really... What are you uh, so mad job. about? <laughs> what are you my so mom, angry about? <laughs> well, what are you so angry about? <laughs> Fred Durst is like, I did it all for the nookie. God, I fucking hate Fred Durst. <laughs> the only good thing about Fred uh, Durst is that he was in a wrestling game and we could all kick his ass. Right. I'm gonna make you do a. Uh, I'm gonna make you do a Limp Biscuit retrospective when I come back. If you make me do Limp Biscuit, I will. Well, then again, I, I will torture you with something you hate. But then you're just not gonna listen to it. 
<laughs> You're like, yeah, I didn't listen to it. I'm like, damn it, Lord. So, Mark, what did you yeah, think I... of the new Dream Theater? What, and I, I didn't listen to it. <laughs> I don't care. How'd you? Like, no. <laughs> oh, Dream Theater was actually pretty good. Not a huge fan, but they were pretty good. But, yeah, this, uh, this album here is very unique. There's a good chunk of it that in 2014 almost comes off as very uh, – what's the word, uh, satirical, just because I guess it's yeah. kind of absurd that this is like an issue now when listening to this album. I think I, said it, I think I said it to you off air, I'll say it now. It's very, un, it's, it's like unself-aware satire. Like, it doesn't know that it, <laughs> you know, it's taking itself seriously, and it completely sounds ridiculous at times. Yeah, it, do, it doesn't quite realize that, yeah, while this, these are very important and serious issues, you're a fucking rap group playing as a metal band. It is, it's not exactly going to come off quite as seriously. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, but uh, um, yeah, I mean, like, it's just, yeah, it's unique, and this is actually a pretty solid album. It was a lot better than I thought it would be. I thought we were going to get, like, two songs that were really awesome, and then otherwise it was just going to be fluff. But, you know, the skits worked. They did all, Oprah impersonations were awful. Uh, the <laughs> Grand, Wizard's girl, uh, Grand Wizard's daughter got fucked pretty hard. It was it was pretty solid. I learned about the evils of the evil dick. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I found out the body count was in the house not once, not twice, but thrice. Yeah. There we go. Fuck. Body count is always in the house. <laughs> Unless, uh, all right. Well, and you know, when they do, there goes the neighborhood. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, and might I also remind you that Mama's got to die tonight? All right. <laughs> That's as good as they end this podcast. As long as he gets it right. As long as he gets it right. <laughs> Mama's got to die tonight. All right. Um, so that's it. That is our uh, body count uh, review. Uh, I like when we go into the Wayback Machine and look at some of these old albums, especially if we have a lot to say about them. Um, as I said to you off air, the reason why we didn't do like a full retrospective is literally the next three albums are more of the same. But it's like, you know, it's 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 the same sort of unaware, kitschy, ridiculousness. But it didn't get any better than this album. This was sort of the high point of the band's career. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, I like the other albums, but not enough to want to do an entire podcast. And I wanted to play every song on this record because they all spoke to me in a way. You know, that's something to say about every every one of them. Um, yeah. So we gave it the proper time that I think it deserves. It wouldn't have been as fun because we would have covered the first one in depth. And then the next three would have been like, ah, I mean, it was okay. It was an album. Yeah, it's more of the same. Um, all right, so in two weeks, uh, it was meant to be our last show, but I'm going to slide one extra one in there. We're going to do um, – in two weeks, we're going to do our cover, favorite covers. I'm going to book the show for uh, two hours, and um, we'll probably end up going over that. And we're just going to load up the show with our favorite covers. No limitations, Ooh. just whatever covers you want to play. It doesn't even have to be metal if you don't want it to be. Uh, just whatever, you know, you just want to talk about and play. It's going to be me and Robert for two hours plus just kicking, just, just kicking the, uh, 
can around, talking about music, talking about songs we like. No, no central topic, no, nothing, nothing like that. Just literally two guys who love music, sharing covers with one another, um, hanging out. That, that's what's going to happen in two weeks. Um, and then two weeks after that is April 1st. It's going to be the very last show that I do on the Rattleism Broadcasting Network as I proceed to uh, go in, into the Jonas Exodus. Um, that show will be a review of the album that will be debuting that day, which is the Austrian Death Machine uh, Triple Brutal. Hopefully we'll actually be able to play tracks on it because I'm thinking about this now. And I'm like, oh, shit. I hope, I hope between the two of us we can actually find the music to upload onto the onto the uh, soundboard. Ooh, if not, we may have to not problem. do that show. Yeah. Well, well maybe um, we'll do another classic album. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. We'll go. We'll do double brutal instead, or we'll do the uh, we'll do the original Total one. Total brutal. Um. There we go. We'll do something Austrian death machine related. If it's the new album, great. If not, then we'll figure something else out. But either way, uh, that's the game plan for that. Um, Robert, go ahead and do your plugs, and I'll finish up with mine. Oh boy, I think we have enough time in this show left for me uh, for me to do plugs. Uh, let's see. First off, there is you have well, five pretty minutes. Much you, you, hang on, you have five minutes, or I'm cutting you off and going to bed. Oh Jesus! <laughs> that's that's I'd say. I, I am I'm the man who uh, manages to put shows in overtime. So. I guess with no further ado, uh, the Rad Boys and Podcasting Network is pretty much the uh, home for any fucking podcast you would ever want to hear on any topic you wouldn't want to hear. I call myself the pretty much the niche artist of the Bad Legend Broadcasting Network, seeing as most of the podcasts that I do on here are very niche topics that have angry white boy fan bases. And, well, first off, there is, of course, this podcast, which is awesome. And then there's From the Cheap Seats, which is myself and Jason Teasley, as we talk sports and sports and sports, but mostly football because that's the only sport we care about. But sports, it's pretty good. Last week we had uh, Jason's friend Dan, who is a uh, a fucking fantasy football like guru. He is amazing. We t- he talked for an hour and a half about the uh, upcoming uh, running backs in the NFL draft. Yeah. I mean, he sat there talking, and Jason's sitting back, and I'm on the computer trying to find statistics because I don't follow college football. Fun times. And uh, this week, we'll probably be talking about the NFL free agency, so it's going to be pretty good. It's going to be pretty fun. And uh, on Friday, since it's our, uh, Robert Winfrey's Everyone Loves a Bad Guy, is doing Spider-Man Villains, which is awesome. I already called dips. <laughs> But unfortunately, I was beat to the punch. So now it's going to be a four-person podcast. For the love of God, help us! It's going to be Robert Winfrey, uh, Benjamin Cologne, who is the title card artist for the uh, Long Road to Ruin, and myself and Jason Teasley. So pretty much as we as we have deemed it, the uh, cheap seats are invading, and we're going to be talking about Spider-Man. And it's going to be great because I love Spider-Man, and I can talk all day about Spider-Man villains. So yeah, that's a thing. Also, uh, check out the Sentai Rider podcast. We've been kind of down for the past two-plus weeks because, uh, well, snowstorms and scheduling and midterms and sleep deprivation. But we'll certainly be back this week, hopefully, on Saturday. If all else fails, if not, we'll hopefully be back on Monday. We've got, like, fucking six podcasts we need to do. So, yeah, so many podcasts. 
damn it, that's the only bad thing about doing weekly shows is that if you fall fall behind, you're going to be in a lot of deep doo doo. <laughs> uh, there's also the cooperative. Yeah, there's also the cooperative multiplayer podcast, which is on the uh, which which page is it? The Wrestling to the Max page on Spreaker.com. It is myself, Daniel Anderson, and Sean Garmer, and hopefully our host Stephen Randall will be back. And if he's back, it's going to be on the uh, CWNE After Dark page on Spreaker.com. But if Randall comes back, it's going to be great because we're going to be talking about video games again, like last week where we talked about video games and the last 30 minutes was masturbation jokes again. Because the week before that, it was an hour of masturbation jokes. I'm not kidding. Like, we we just went off. We went on the silly wagon. And if it wasn't masturbation jokes, it was dick jokes. It was bad puns. It was, no. It was, like, it was hilarious. Because I went and listened to it again, and I just couldn't stop laughing. I mean, it was absolutely hilarious. Filthy, but hilarious. But then again, you're coming to the man... You're talking to the man who, uh, you know, rates things in titties and makes very racist remarks with Kamado. So, yeah, there's nothing much more you can expect. <laughs> and finally, uh, column-wise, if I ever write the damn thing, the Hammer of Doomers report will hopefully be out sometime this week. Don't quite – actually, I do know what my main topic is going to be. It's going to be all about Kiss and the bullshit with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And even though this is, like, literally, like, two weeks old, it's still relevant about, you know, Peter, Chris, and Ace Freely aren't going to be playing with them, so they said, fuck it, we're not going to play at all. Huge fucking brouhaha. Fucking grown-ass men being bitches. But at least it's good news. So make sure you, uh, you know, look out for that on com in the Music Zone. So pretty sure that's all for my plugs. I think I have been deemed the hardest-working man on the Internet by... Jason Teasley, and sometimes I like to think that's true. <laughs> All right. Um, last week, uh, last week Tuesday, Pat Mullen uh, was on the Long Road to Ruin. We looked at the Missing in Action trilogy. That was a lot of fun. We had a good time with that. He's gonna be back. We've got a couple of uh, we've got a couple of series lined up for him to do when I come back from the Jonas Exodus. Um, so. Stay tuned for that. Uh, give, go ahead and li- li- give the mi- Missing in Action podcast a listen. We had a good time talking about that, Rambo, Vietnam, you know, all that stuff there. Uh, a week from tonight, Sean Comer is back just in time to see me take off, Ooh. and we won't be alone. Gavin Napier, uh, he won the bet, so he gets to come on to The Long Road to Ruin and wish me farewell as I go on the Jonas Exodus. And we're going to be talking about the original Evil Dead trilogy. So that'll be fun. Um, I just uh, saw the first two for the first time in my life this past weekend, and they're interesting movies to say the least. So Long Road to Ruin, The, ret- the, the Return of Sean Comer, uh, Gavin Napier will be coming back on the show after having joined us for Mission Impossible 3 and 4, Evil Dead trilogy. And that's a week from tonight. Uh, in addition to that, uh, this Saturday night, I will be covering for 411 UFC 171, Johnny Hendricks versus Robbie Lawler, and that's going to start, I believe, at 6 o'clock on Fight Pass. Um, Thursday night, we'll be recording the Casual Heroes WrestleCast, 
We got. A, we may or may not be doing a live pre-show. Haven't figured that out yet. Um, last week, Gavin and I did a live uh, show just focusing on CM Punk. Uh, go ahead and give that a listen. So far, that's gotten high praise. Last week, I was on the uh, Everyone Loves a Bad Guy podcast, and we were talking about the Joker. Um, and this past Friday night, Pat was on talking about Dr. Doom. And apparently people were really into that podcast. It's, it's doing quite well. So I'm proud of those guys for putting out a quality product there. I'm glad people are enjoying it. Uh, aside from that, uh, that's about it for now. Go ahead, check out Pat Mullins' um, championship rounds on the Casual Heroes. Uh, again, let's check out Jason Teasley and Robert Cooper on Thursday nights as they uh, do the cheap seats. Check out the Casual Heroes WrestleCast. And I think that is it. So in two weeks, we're well, back here again for the metal. Oh, and the ground this, and yeah, the, ground and, the 401 <laughs> Ground and Pound radio show is, every, is live every Sunday night at 9 o'clock. Oof, completely forgot about that. Uh, I, you know what it was? I missed it last week because I was in New York. But I'll be back on it this week to, to, re, to review UFC 171 and preview Shogun Hua versus Dan Henderson 2 which I don't think will be as good as the first one was, but that's, that's the whole no. podcast. I mean, I mean, Jesus, Dan Henderson's like 10 feet in the grave and Shogun can't walk. And they, oh. and they, no, and they can't have the TRT anymore. That's how it goes. Well, right, hey, Henderson so, got his TRT, so he'll be good just for this fight. Just for this fight. Yeah, maybe, maybe it won't <laughs> be so bad then. All right, for Mr. Robert Cooper, the hardest working man on the Internet, my name is Mark Rattledge. Be well, be safe, and be happy.